0: You know, I remember going to school. I mean, and for my first six years of school, I was bullied because I was one of only three uh, kids of color in the entire school. And I knew that as soon as I stepped out of line, the N word, you know, the N bomb would drop, you know, and that would come flying at really unexpected moments. So I really kept my head down. I really tried to, you know, I I built my best mask. didn't question things in class. I didn't question other children and so forth because I had no idea that I could, you know, I, my, my kind of survival recipe at the time was just like, just avoid being called names, avoid being called out for being the only black kid in class, but giving that back now, you know, uh, uh, 40 years later or 35 years later and saying, you know what? Somebody calls you names. If you notice bullying going on, start a conversation, you know, involve adults. And just trying to inspire kids to to actually, you know, because the, the, the rights of the child means also that means that the child has rights right? But it also means that adults have responsibilities. Children can demand these rights and it's up to the adults to give them that. So that's basically the book. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this moment, the transatlantic bridge between Södermalm in Stockholm and Harlem, USA. With yours truly Jason Diakite and my dear brother Marcus Samuelson. What's up, my friend? How you doing, brother?
1: I'm good. You got that I know what you're doing. You're doing it for the ladies. You got that <laughs> sexy voice now. So
0: switching on, you know, I've had it's it's like we're moving into cold season here. And it's it's a little like we have this concept in Sweden called Vab Vod of Baum. So taking care of a child, basically. And, uh, so I was, she she couldn't go to daycare for a whole week, about two weeks ago. Then my partner got that cold, was sick for a week. I've been sick all this week. And yesterday my daughter got a cold again. So I've, I've been, you know, home taking care of her and hanging out with her all day. So we're into the, this isn't the second wave. This is just the wave that always comes in when you're living way up north. I just
1: thought you were trying to do the Swedish better white or something like that because it was working. It was
0: working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I definitely feel like I have it going on here when I'm up close to my mic. I've got my headset on. But how are you doing, Marcus? How's, how's Harlem? You how's know, New York? You know,
1: I think, you know, my, again, my check, my, my Zion is healthy, my wife is healthy, I'm healthy, so I'm, I'm blessed. And... I feel like we turned a corner in a, in a way, right? Um, school was supposed to start on Monday on the 21st, but then New York changed it yesterday, so it's going to start on the 29th instead. You know, but people are wearing masks. We, you know, New York is is got a very low uh, percentage now, so we're doing good as a city, and things are opening up. And obviously, for me in the restaurant business, outdoor seating has been going off a couple of weeks now, and on mm-hmm. around October.
0: Has that changed the vibe of, because like New York City, as if you compare yeah. it to Paris or Rome, New York City has never been an outdoor dining or outdoor drinking type all, of city. You know, people go indoors and do this,
1: it. Not only does it change the vibe of the city, it's saved the restaurants, so Jason, about 15,000 restaurants has already closed in New York City, right? You got. I mean, it's like a population of a city or the small
0: city. How, what kind of percentage of the restaurants is that about?
1: Uh, I would say it's about 60, 50, 60% of the restaurants. Wow, that's and high, I'm not end. I'm not talking wow. high-end restaurants. I'm talking those mom and pop that really makes the city, right? Why you go to Queens, why you go to, you know, out of and so on. So in order to... to to save the restaurant industry as a whole, the outdoor seating has completely saved us. Now, we were banging on the doors. Okay, now October is coming. How long is this gonna go on? And um, so October 1st, we're gonna open for, we're allowed to open for 25%. It's not a lot. But it's a start, at least. So, you know, at Rooster, we, we got to... But
0: can you run Rooster on... So you get to have 25% of your guests, but you still need to have... Do you need to have full staff, or do you have 25% staff, or, I mean...
1: You know, the Rooster, you know, uh, it's not the same, right? Where a full band downstairs, DJ upstairs, two kitchen <laughs> going on, three, four hundred people in, No, it's not like that at all, but it's a start, Right. And I also been very fortunate because we have a rooftop in New Jersey that is huge, like right on the water. So the staff that didn't work, got a, couldn't work with me at a Rooster, that actually got a job in New Jersey, which is just across the bridge. So I realize you have to acknowledge your privilege. I'm extremely privileged to have these opportunities, but this fight, the battle we do, and it's not just for us; it's for. The small mom and pops that essentially why we love New York City is to you know the neighborhood is because of the very much to the restaurants the mom and pops and they don't have those opportunities so this is uh, this is not about the star chefs and the famous people this is really about our industry as
0: a whole. So the outdoor seating will remain. So has this changed the way New Yorkers like eat and drink when they go out? Because now, I mean, like in Paris, it's not it's not strange to sit no. outside. Everybody sits outside. You may. You may go to your local restaurant and you never go inside it because you're always sitting outside. outside, No, it's
1: definitely changed the city uh, in many ways. And the goal is probably to, you know, to keep whatever we can that worked right. And then to try to work on safety and and so on. But people always say, oh, once the vaccine comes, everything's going to go back to normal. It's not, you know, there is habits have already changed, Jason, as you know, Consumer habits have changed. People are already looking sort of side-eyed going into crowds, which, which with all rights, you know what I mean? So um, we're doing good, uh, but it's, we also, there's this fear in the air that's still here.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. I want to ask you a question, Marcus. It's actually a two-parter that segues into our main topic for today. But first off, you know, it's been a journey doing this podcast with you. Uh, I really feel like there are, you know, we've been friends for 25 years. We always have a great time and we hang out. There's always, you're always giving me like inspiration and energy for projects I'm doing. You're telling me about projects you're doing, but the way we've met in, in this podcast format, the way we have our regular Zooms, not only is it a lifeline for me, you know, spiritually that I get to talk to you and and remain connected to New York City, to Harlem and to you. Um, but also. It feels like while we've been on this journey, you know, the times have kind of, um, you know, I'm, I want to say you've changed, you know, uh, or you've grown in my eyes, you know, uh, so not only have I found out new aspects about you, how you grew up, you know, your feelings about that you so eloquently express about how it is being adopted, things that we hadn't touched on during the 25 years that we were friends that came out now when we were doing the podcast. But one thing i I feel so strongly from you now is that I don't want to call it politics, but the, 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 uh, racial matters you know you know the uh the the movement for black lives has like leaked into kind of everything you do and I know it's been there all along but what I want to ask you is how do you think that's going to reflect in the food this new kind of this next step of consciousness now that you open up Red Rooster again I kind of get the impression it's going to be in every aspect of what you do like from now on
1: well I mean Jason, and, and thank you, and I, I feel the same. You know, Stockholm was a city that I used to visit four times a year through work and see you and my friends and, and feel connected. My connectivity to my, one of my home country, Sweden, is now really through these Zooms, right, and talking to you, and it's a window in, it's something we look forward to. But I think that, you know, just like 9-11 changed us forever, Right? It changed our habit, it changed how we travel, it changed um, our, our consciousness around, around fear, what's even possible, right? Uh, COVID, this moment, has changed me and my family and us forever. And everyone is dealing with it in such a different way. You know, even today. I had two masks with me and i couldn't leave with one because i always drop one between the restaurant uh, and and Mm. coming over here so i have to have two masks on me and uh in the smallest thing of of i just saw one of my neighbors was walking without a mask and i right away did like a sign and and she waved at me thank you because she forgot she had it down like Mm. the way we Mm. interact and then when you think about it from from blackness that, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to move in Harlem was because I really, you know, I want to steep myself in the knowledge of our history better. And when you see and live every day, the inequalities, you have to react and act. You have to become an advocate. And Rooster's always been that piece for me that is of black culture, but for everyone. The work I do in the books is a different way, of, different medium. But a book very often meets, reads, is read very often by someone that is like-minded or is curious about like-minded people. Um, and, you know, what I love about our project, uh, about this moment is I learn a lot too. I mean, these amazing people like Nicolana Jones or Kimberly or all these great guests that we've had on, you know, it makes you walk. they
0: us, man. Yeah. It's, they're schooling us. Uh, but that's the segue part of the question, Marcus, because you're coming out with a new book, brother. Yeah, this yeah. is your like what? If I'm not mistaken, it's your seventh?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of books. It's a lot of books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm excited. So the rise is coming out now and kind of at a serendipitous moment. I mean, we know that this is always at the top of our minds, Right telling our history, just like we talked with Nicole Hannah-Jones last week, yes. like really being, like reclaiming the authorship of our history. And mm-hmm. you do that so much in in food, and but also in culture yeah. on a wider scale, I'd say. Tell me a bit about the rise. How did the? How did you get the idea? What is the book about?
1: Yeah. Well, we're both authors, and so we're both coming out with books. So, you know, I wanted to drop a little bit of knowledge <laughs> about my book, and then... We, we flip it.
0: Yeah, um, I'll hit you back. I'll hit you back, definitely. So right. Tell me about the rise.
1: Yeah, I would say, Jason, when I was coming up with a young chef, the idea of a black chef even doing a book, it didn't exist, right? So that was one of those notes that I put up early. Maybe one day I can open a restaurant. Maybe one day I can do a cookbook. So the existence, it was, it was like... Just the idea of it. So that always inspired me. So when I had a chance to do my first book about 15 years ago, I grabbed that chance right away, right? And then it was about the evolutions of the books and the context. The first book was very much about the restaurant or the food that we're doing at the highest level. And it's almost like... What
0: was it called? Well... That was the Akavit. The Akavit
1: cookbook was the first cookbook I did here in America. And then I had a chance to do, uh, you know... Um, the soul of a new cuisine, which was really talking about African food and the the links. But you know, as I've I, cooked
0: that kalaloo soup uh, recipe that you have it, I love it. <laughs> I love it, man. That, Even though I can't get kalaloo in Sweden, but yeah. you know, I make do with some with some kale. But yeah,
1: there you go, there you go. Yeah. But the consciousness. But Jason, it was also about as I was doing all these events. I always thought it was and traveled the country. I always thought it was. Strange because as black people, we were specifically brought to this country to work the fields and and cook, right? And yet when you look at American history, we were written out out of American history. Black people were written out in terms of the authorship of black food. Yet all food you know in America links back to blackness, right? If you think about the cuisine that most people think about America, so soul food is obviously, real derivative of Southern cooking and the, and the journey of the migration. Barbecue, right? It's all, you think about Creole cooking, it's all, it's like the musicians would talk about American music and write black people out, it wouldn't work. So for me, it's really about reclaiming the authorship, celebrating black as excellence, but then also celebrating the, that we're not monolithic. And I always look at you guys, I always look at the musicians, if I want jazz, if I want gospel, if I want hip hop, if I want trap, if I want R&B, that library is there. And behind each mm. title, I can go, we can discuss the artists mm. based on that. When I talk about black food, the heroes are almost unwritten out out of the history. Mm. And mm. I'm like, we got to stop this. So the rise is really about celebrating black excellence by doing three things. We're looking in the past, so we're celebrating the Edna Lewis, the Leah Chase, the incredible majority of black women that set up the history for us. We're in very much in the present and talking about these chefs that are, should get much more recognition nationwide. Mm. And then we discuss that also that, if I'm like brother Gregory's Haitian American, I'll cook different than if I'm like Eduardo, that came from the South, and, 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 and works on the west coast and cooks a different cuisine. If I'm Naisha and I'm Korean, African-American, I cook different than somebody that works here on the east coast, right? So all these things mm-hmm. are laid mm-hmm. up. And then we also talk about the future. So the, young, the oldest chef is 96 and the youngest chef is 18. and uh, wow. you know, So it's, it's the parameter between past, present, future. And it talks about the non-monolithic journey as a black chef.
0: Mm. Mm-mm. I can't wait to get my hands on it, Marcus.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: The Rise, the rise is poetic. It's a beautiful title. and uh... Yeah.
1: And it's about 40. We, have about, we do a deeper dive in 40 African-Americans. Uh, actually, one gentleman, he moved back to Lagos. And that's what's going to come next, right? Even Black Chef, we went to Europe to get our knowledge Next gonna be, you're gonna go to the continent to get your knowledge, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The way Stevie went to Lagos, the way you did in the early 2000s with your band, you went to West Africa mm-hmm. to get inspired, right? Mm. That's gonna happen now in the, in the food industry and I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. And you know, when you drop a book, it also gets you to different places. I'm actually gonna have a chance to speak at Harvard in a couple of weeks. And all the listeners to this moment is actually going to have the opportunity mm. to connect and, and listen to that um, in lecture. A,
0: in a sense, I mean, you think of cookbooks, and you think, yeah, it's it's a celebration of food. It's it's a spreading ideas about food. It's culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's also so deeply history. And I mean, especially with a book like The Rise, but even thinking of your previous book. Uh, the Red Rooster book, it, yeah. it's also celebrations of history. Like, how important is that for you? That it's not just lining up recipes and, like, here's some food you can cook, be inspired by what we're doing, you know, and try this at home.
1: But as black people, we have to reclaim things because it's all done wrong from the beginning. Food is no different than that, right? I'm going to give you three examples very quick, right? Right. Jack Daniels, we've all had it. The person that came up with the recipe for Jack Daniels, his name was Nearest Green. He was a slave. He didn't get one dime from Jack Daniels. It's probably the most famous brown liquor brand in the world. Not one dime. What do you think would have happened if just he would have get 10 cents for every bottle? We would have had, what would have that done for aspiration, but also reality in terms of landowning, in terms of Wells building. Uh, wealth building right yeah. that's just one story right so we did all the work but every time we got written out of the script and ownership of something but also orally and historically ownership of something so you can't aspire to be something if you never ever ever have seen anybody done something like that right when you think about how it's linked to africa you know The slave traders knew there was wealth in Africa. That's why they're so fought over. So it's all about power. Food, and and it shouldn't be minimized just in terms of how restaurant works. It's everything, Jason. Think about how uh, when you're going to give somebody, you give your mom a nice uh, box of chocolate, Belgian chocolate. There is no cocoa beans growing in Belgium. It's all from Ghana. So, you know, and not until we can actually reclaim excellence, this should say chocolate box from Ghana, the finest chocolate from Ghana. That both, who owns that chocolate? Who has, to, has the license to that, right? It changes everything from commodity to wealth to aspiration. So every time we have something, it gets taken away from us, even to this day, right? So, so all of this is about doing the rice It's also about reclaiming things and documenting it. So now when you search it, it's documented. And
0: also, you know, thinking of the enslaved people were not allowed to, for a long time, to learn how to read and write. So the authorship of those recipes was not yes. was not allowed to be in their hands.
1: Yet we still trade on it. Like you think about Southern mm. food, think how ingenious it was, right? All the things that we think about, something like grits, where do you think that came from? The, the seeds, the ground nuts, the peanuts. So we have so much to thank for generations of just knowledge, but also food is activism. A lot of Martin Luther King's fundraising was done by black women, you know, waking up three o'clock in the morning, baking, doing sale, uh, bake sales at the churches, and then donating the, to, the to to the civil rights movement. You know, so it's all linked, but, you know.
0: And, and you know, ha- having grown up in Sweden, the son of of, uh, of immigrants, you know, um, both for my mom and dad, the food that they cook and, and when food is cooked for them and the food that links them back to their home country, to their childhood, it is so, I, I mean, I can, you know, especially my dad, I can really tell when, but, but actually also in my mom, I can tell when, when a dish brings them back. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And then at the same time, they're doing their own fusion. You know, I'll never forget the day when my pops and, and his friend, uh, the neighborhood poet, Georgia Jones, from uh, an African-American man who was a poet, singer, uh, a brilliant thinker, but also, like, really out there. Nice, beautiful. Uh, a, a true surrealist. Anyway, uh, you know... George came over with, and he had some seal, you know, Mm -hmm. some pickled Swedish herring, like super Swedish thing. My dad had some grits. Boom, they had, they sat down and had seal and grits. Oh my god! Like it was, like it was no thing, and I was just like laughing. I'm like, you guys are eating seal and grits. This is like. This is this is sacrilegious, you know. Uh in both ways. They're like, Why don't you sit down and have some? I'm like, yo, I don't touch seal. I'll t- I'll try some of the grits, but that pickled herring I don't go near. But it, it. might
1: also be the title of your next album. You never know because so it so yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. it's so good. It's deep, man. It's, so- it's deep, you know. It's the one thing we have in Sweden and Swedes really cling to it. Um for all our listeners out there, Marcus and I were doing a, a great Zoom panel with the Scandinavian House in New York City. And uh, it was a great discussion. Jonas Hassan from Stockholm, a brilliant writer, and Simon Pasternak, a publisher from Copenhagen. But you said something that really stuck with me, Marcus, and that was uh, because one of the... Uh, a person in the audience uh, in the chat wrote a question saying, you know, do we have to... Um, does Swedish culture have to be erased in order for us to embrace uh, the new cultures, mm. the, the the new cultural uh, uh, heterogeneity, mm. the the diversification of Swedish culture? Does that mean we lose our traditions and values? And you were like, no, just look at a, a Swedish pizza, man. Yeah. You know, I think it's brilliant the fact that when it comes to food and it comes to
1: we figured out ways. Like the Swedish pizza menu, for people who don't know it, it's a very specific thing. It came in the late 60s when the Italian um, migrants came up to work in Sweden. And then in the 70s and the 80s, it really exploded. So Swedish pizza menu, it's not like a Naples pizza. It's not like a thick crust pizza. It's its own thing, and everyone in Sweden loves it, and we celebrate it, and I would say the latest one that came out, or I would say in the late 90s, early 2000s, was the kebab pizza, and it became sort of like instant hit, instant classic, deeply rooted into immigrant culture, <laughs> not just Italian-American, uh, not just Italian-Swedish culture. It's messy, it's greasy, and but it's also delicious. So, mm-hmm. of course, we can eat, we. Swedish meatballs, lingam berries, herring will always be there, and it should be there as the Swedish food with origin. But we can evolve, and there's nothing to be afraid about. Have no fear. We will be even more beautiful as a multicultural society.
2: Selling
0: a little or a lot?
1: I want to flip this question, Jason, because you're a poet. You know, yes, you're a rapper, but, you know, you're also a poet. Um, and when you decided to write A Drop of Midnight, it was, it was a big book and it's something you worked on for a long time. And then this year, you decided to come up with a children's book. Tell me about that.
0: So a friend of mine, um, Matilda uh Asked me to have coffee with her, classic Swedish fika, I want to say early summer last year. And she said, do you know that on January 1st, 2020, the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child becomes Swedish law? I was like, I had no idea. But how is Swedish law going to live up to the UN Convention on the uh, Rights of the Child? Because it's a very... You know, it's a massive uh, uh, document, which is like vast in scope. You know, just paragraph two, um, all children are, I have to direct translate it, but all children are equal uh, and no child uh, is to be discriminated against. You know, and when that then becomes Swedish law, I'm like, well, how are they going to live up to that? All children are equal, no child is to be discriminated. I'm like, great. Let, you know, and she was like, I think we should write a book for kids between nine and 12 and explain to them what this document becoming law can mean to them in their lives. And, uh, we went back and forth a bit on it. Like, how do we do it? Do we put, so it's 54 articles in the UN convention, right? Uh, do we take like one article and then we write some stories about that, that kind of pertain to that. And then the next page is a new article. Um, So that was our that was our first layup. And then then we kind of threw that idea out because it's not, you know, it's not like super magnetic, like it's not reading that 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 pulls adults in even. So how do you get kids to, you know, how can we say this in in, in a direct and and uh, Mm -hmm. simple but attractive way? So basically what it is, is stories from Matilda's and my life, um, you know, things that we or our families have been through or experienced and how that pertains to different articles in the convention of the child basically it's a it's a handbook for empowering children in sweden on what their rights are you know so all about starting conversations with adults you know uh, talking to your teacher demanding from your teacher you know i remember going to school i mean and i for my first six years of school I was bullied because I was one of only three, uh, kids of color in the entire school. And I knew that as soon as I stepped out of line, the N word, Mm -hmm. you know, the N bomb would drop, you know, and that would come flying at really unexpected moments. So I really kept my head down. I really tried to, you know, I, I built my best mask and, and, uh, and yeah, I didn't question things in class. I didn't, uh, uh, question other children and so forth because I had no idea that I could, you know, I, my, my kind of survival recipe at the time was just like, just avoid being called names, avoid being called out for being the only black kid in class. Um, but, but, but giving that back now, you know, uh, uh 40 years later or, or 35 years later and saying, you know what, somebody calls you names. If you notice bullying going on, start a conversation, you know, involve adults and, and just trying to inspire kids to to actually, uh, you know, because the, the, the rights of the child means also yeah. that means that the child has rights right? But it also means that adults have responsibilities. Children can demand these rights and it's up to the adults to give them that. So that's basically the book.
1: But can you also explain the title? Because the title has a subtle way of having double meaning as well. So, du har means... So the
0: title in Swedish is du har rätt, which means literally you are right. But it also in Swedish implies that you have rights. Yes. So I'm thinking about how we can translate it to English now and... I brought up the idea with the publisher, they're going to look into it and so forth. The convention goes deep. I mean, it deals with torture, it deals with war, it deals with rights, it deals with uh, your right to uh, leisure time and activities, to education, to housing, to, you know, the works, right? So obviously it's not law in a lot of English speaking places in the world, but yet and still this document exists. And, And that's something I love about the the idea of the United Nations is that it's really, it's it's altruistic, but it's altruistic in a very beautiful sense. I'm mean, I'm talking about the ideas, yeah, not how yeah, the yeah. organization well, like course. actually works. There's framework. A yeah, lot yeah. to say about that. The framework of. 193 countries getting together and saying this is what we want to strive for Mm -hmm. this is the this is the benchmark this is the standard we want to hold humanity to you know there are no other organizations like it so and i also grew up in a household where you know my father's a human rights lawyer where human rights in the United Nations is like the, of the utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Very respected institution in my home. So it felt good also to to be able to send my dad the book. Of course. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. He was more excited about receiving this book than the, the book about our family. My, wow. you know, A Drop of Midnight. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because this pertains so much to what he works with.
1: Have, so Max, it's obviously your daughter's obviously seen you go through this and go through that she's very very young but it's also beautiful um you know it's a children's book or young adult you know right before young adult mm-hmm. so it's highly graphic so
0: mm. what have she looked at it yet or she hasn't really i mean she's she's you know thrown it around a bit you know she's seen the cover but it's not it hasn't really grabbed her interest yet. I think you know. I'm trying to. I keep it in a high place because otherwise she'll you know grab her crayons and go to work and you know start writing her own book. That's kind of what you know where she's where she's at. Um, but it is an offering to her. I it, I mean from now on, or from the time I became her father, everything I do is an mm-hmm. is an offering to of her. I mean she's that's one of the one of the beautiful revelations of becoming a parent for me was that that everything from now on. Is for her. Even, you know, bringing it back to food, it's even made me think about how I eat, mm-hmm. you know. OK, what am I, you know, what am I putting into my body? My body has to last as long as it possibly can because I have to be there for my daughter. Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. What am I giving her to eat? You know, and and but also how it pertains to, OK, I got to be around. I I, I I want to be around. I want to see her evolve. I want to see her. Uh, grow and, and develop and discover, um, so I got to start thinking about these things. So, so this is one of the offerings um, to her. But, but I also wanted to say, there's something dope about um, writing for. You know, young listeners or young readers, I, they have this uh, very popular cartoon in Sweden called Alfonso by, yeah. uh, it's actually translated, it's called Alfie Atkins in, in English, but I don't know how popular it is in English speaking countries, but it does exist. Anyway, I made a song for uh, for Alfonso by Alfie Atkins movie, and that's my, my daughter's, and I made this song like. 2012, I think, you know, when this film came out, like way before, uh, you know, she wasn't even a, 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 you know, a a spark in daddy's or mommy's eye at the time. Right. Uh, And now it's her favorite movie. And every time the song comes on, she's like, ah, it's Papa's singing. Papa's singing. That's 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 my Papa. He's singing, you know, telling people at daycare. And so. Yeah, that it, it, it was really beautiful when she uh, when, when she discovered that that's actually my dad singing that. But but again, so when I wrote that song uh, and I knew it was for kids and just like writing this book, you need to have this like clarity, right? Yeah. For me,
1: Jason, I I always balance my parents, and you know, we spent probably more time with my mother than my father, uh, but you know, the impact of my father's work, you know, I was always. You know, we all layered and complicated people. And as I was growing up as, um, and it's very often I feel very blessed as a black person to be able through my books and through my work to be able to describe that. That's what you do through mm-hmm. your music and through your books. You have an opportunity to have a dialogue with the public. And one thing that, you know, when I saw my father's clarity was when he was in the fishing village. That's where it was home for him. When he was in the city, He had to do that. He had to be a geologist to provide for his family. He loved it, but he was never a city person, right? It was a trade that he did to provide for us. But also, when I saw he had clarity was when he was doing books. He was, as a geologist, he had to publish. And these were not necessarily books for the, it was really B2B. For the masses. No. And my mom was always a book is something you should enjoy and read how come there's no picture and my father was more like it's b to b in this back and forth yeah. but even as an 11 year old as a 12 year old as a 15 year old i'm like marcus you gotta if you're ever gonna do a book do a book that is both entertaining and has mm-hmm. find out mediums so images mm-hmm. pictures became important right so i was very clear on my cookbooks like it has to have uh beautiful images, or even if I can't, illustrations. So, you know, I always take a lot of pride in that. And, and when I wrote Yes, Chef, the publisher was very clear on, no recipes, very few images. Mm-hmm. And it forced mm-hmm. me to think about every sentence. And mm-hmm. uh, it took five years, but the first line of Yes, Chef, um, I remember when Veronica, my co-author and I, going back and forth she just said the first line it was her line she just and I was like wow that was clarity she said I've never seen the eyes of my mother right because I've never seen the eyes of my Ethiopian mother mm. and it's like a brutal line that cut straight through and I never rebounded after that line
0: but Marcus do you have a memory of the last book or a book that made you cry?
1: Um, yeah, <laughs> I do. I, I could tell you the first book that made me cry. Like, it's very clear to me. Mm. The f- very first book, Malcolm uh, by, mm. by Alex Haley. And it's actually now, you mm-hmm. can download it. Actually, now I haven't listened to it yet, but they have your audiobook too now. And I can't, I think it's Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. You know, I just thought, yeah, that's going to be, I can't wait to
0: go on a long flight or something like that and just nerd down. But But what part in the book were you, where you touched to that?
1: About the transformation, about the transformation, how many lives he lived in his very young life, the transformation of how jail really saved him. And then going back to Africa, his, his many transformations, right? And, um. I mean, he lived a sh- short life, but extremely impactful. And when he died, you know, he, you still hope it's not going to happen. Uh,
0: but I mean, I'm, I'm just a, such a wuss. I mean, just how that book starts with, you know, his dad was a preacher and how his dad was, correct me if I'm wrong, but because I haven't read it in a while, but he was lynched mm-hmm. by the Klan.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Like in front of the whole family. And, you know that's how that's how Mar, that's how Martin malcolm's life starts yeah. you know um that was a pivotal book for me. my mom actually gave it to me my dad gave it to me and that that's the book that woke woke me up mm-hmm. changed my life too you know and that that was such a yeah right that was such a gateway into reading then eldridge cleaver mm-hmm. you know uh bobby seal um uh i even you know i even got to baldwin, baldwin even though it was like baldwin was a little too you know i was 15, 16, 17 years old, I couldn't really uh, absorb what Baldwin was saying, you know. Um, but it w- really was such a portal into I started looking at my dad's bookshelf in a in a totally different way and and finding all these all of a sudden I I saw these African American or, or or African authors and I was pulling those books out, skipping all the other ones, you know. Um, insatiable as as find First, I was like, "I'm finding out about this now, you know, <laughs> that feeling. but But that's with really
1: great content that hits you, right? Like, where have I been? You know you, you, We like to think that we read, we like to think that we are curious. And then when you stumble on information that has been right there in front of you, I'm like, and you dive in and that, that's the beauty of storytelling. Exactly.
0: I, you you yeah, read I, my mind. I, yeah
1: I think that as, as, as a person, as a creative, as a black creative, but it's also as a creative in general, people can say, but you're not an author, right? And in the beginning, I really struggled with that because you're right, no, I didn't go to, uh, you know, I didn't go to a creative writing program and so on, no, absolutely, but for me, writing is about storytelling and sharing, right? And it's very important to claim your history, claim your your narrative, and tell the story. So, you know, 10 books in or whatever it is, yes, I am an author. It took me a long time to say that. Um, and it's, it's you know, of course, being a chef is my trade. Uh, but yes, I've also done many, many books and connected to people all over the world through it. And it was that duality, again, that I mirror my father. You know, if you asked my father, if he would just ask you, answer who is he he would say he's a fisherman mm.
0: Mm.
1: but his trade was to be a geologist mm. you know what i mean yeah so it's like that cultural identity who you
0: are. yeah the only book i can really recall that i cried when reading was uh obama's book dreams of my father and i think reading that book was and i read it then what 2007 or 2008 also my mom gave it to me mm. also a pivotal book in my wow. life um when he's describing his high school years and his identity crises of realizing that he wasn't always black enough to be black or and definitely never white enough to be white, and how he just expresses it, I was like, I've never seen in writing somebody express what I have felt all for for so long and so deeply in my life and yeah, it just moved me to tears and I I was totally unprepared for it, you know. Um beautiful. Yeah, the the strength of reading or the the power of books and the power of the story. I mean, it's so true, it's almost cliché, right? Uh without storytelling there can be no bridges of understanding. there, there can be no uh if you don't if I don't he- if you don't tell me your story and I don't hear you, I if I don't listen to your story and hear your story then I can never know you.
1: But I can, I can, you know, I cry over many things. You know, i from I'm a, on the lighter side.
0: I so don't see you as Oh a my cry. God, oh my God. That's the thing. I, I cry. Because you know? you're, you're laughter to me. No. You're not... You, you but know, but you're, something that hits energy me. energy in its cleanest form. Well,
1: I cry oh. when Tribe Called Quest broke up. <laughs> if I watch a documentary and I know the end but I'm like why did they have to break up right
0: okay let me say something that's really weird and maybe private to say in the podcast but and and mohammed the producer is going to start laughing now luckily he doesn't have a mic but um i cried when i found out that avicii committed suicide yeah, of course and i was super un unex- it was so yeah. i'm like why am i i never listened to avicii's music but there was something so deeply sad about his passing and that he so young and so successful took his own life. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah I, I hear you. But I, 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 my relationship to crying is that sometimes I don't cry for like three years and then there'll be like a year where I cry over the smallest thing. Right? I
1: cried uh, so much when Anthony died, when Tony Bourdain died. Uncontrollably, you know, it was, it was, and I think it was those years of I had, I hadn't cried for a long time, and it was all of that. But I think with the Avicii and, and Tony, maybe there's some real, relatability in the sense of we sometimes hold up in a hotel room, we travel, we have an external success, but internally we are away from our families. It's all of those things that, you know, I was shocked with the Avicii too.
0: Let me tell you one thing about Sweden, Marcus, is that um, films are starting to pop up here, too. Mm. Not, no films of, of uh, any black or brown person being killed by law enforcement. but mm. Thank God. There was a film that came out, I think it was Sunday, of a guy that I've actually met, Benjamin from Malmö. And uh, if you live in Malmo, a lot of people that live in Malmo, there's a bridge to the neighboring country, Denmark, to Copenhagen. And a lot of people who live in Malmo work in Copenhagen. You take a train, it's a half hour, 40 minute train ride, but it's also a border. Right. And that border used to be a soft one because of the EU. But now because of covid, it's a hard border. And. Uh, it actually became a hard border during what they call the refugee crisis of 2015, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though the EU legally is not supposed to do border checks between countries. They started doing it because, yeah. you know, all these EU countries were trying to limit or, or limit control and and ultimately maybe keep out the refugees that were fleeing the Syrian war. But then also this constant trickle of people fleeing Afghanistan and migrants from West and East Africa and from all over the world. But um, so crossing this hard border, when you come into Malmo, the police get on the train and uh, they they ask people for their I.D. And uh, so the, the a film pops up Sunday of uh, a guy. He's shown his I.D. Uh, proven that he's you know, allowed to enter Sweden. Yep. Um, but the cop is like, I think you're, you know, I think you're hiding something. I want you to c- come with me off the train. I need to, you know, uh, I need to investigate this. I need to, I need to search you. And he's like, no, I'm on my way home from work. I'm on my way uh, to my yeah. family. Why do you want to search me? I haven't done anything. Why, why are you, why do you want to search me? And the moment before this is not shown off film, they had had the because they have the the dogs right that, that sniff up and down the, yeah. the cars to find out if anybody's holding something, mm-hmm. and the dogs had just been there. They hadn't marked his him or his bag or anything, so there was no reason, right, mm-hmm. for him to get pulled off the chase. He's, he's on his way back from work, and he knows. Of of course he knows, and everybody's watching the film knows who who is black and brown knows that the reason is because he's black and that's mm-hmm. why he wants him to get off the train. That means getting off the train at a station. That's, uh, yeah. you know, n- not the station he's going to, he's mm-hmm. like in the film saying, well, I'm going to tri- the triangle, which is yeah. a, a part of central Malmo. He's like, I'm going to the triangle. That's, you know, that's my stop. So you can check me when I get off at my stop, but I'm not getting off this train right now. And, uh, yeah, they pull him off the train and, uh, and, and search him, but then they let him go. He didn't have anything. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... You
0: know, that was a moment where I didn't cry, really, but it made me very, very angry yeah. and, and very upset. Um, but these films are starting to... Uh, sure. The tool of the, the iPhone and, and, and the camera and the iPhone and that power that it gives is starting to be used here in Sweden to document... Uh, What has been here as long as black and brown people have been here, you know, racism in its subconsciously.
1: Also, I mean, think about the police officers in Sweden and Denmark and all over. they see the videos in America and for maybe 80, 90 percent of them, it's one thing. But for the 10 percent that wants to go on a power trip, you know, this is the, you know, content goes to everybody. And it's a lot of responsibility on how you how you take that in. So I'm not surprised. And the thing is, Jason, it will not be less. It will be more.
0: You know, I, and, and, and talking about things that, that make you cry, when I found out, what is this, three weeks ago maybe, that Jacob Blake was handcuffed to his bed at the hospital mm-hmm. where he's recovering mm-hmm. from being shot seven times mm-hmm. in the back for trying to stop a fight, For you know, for trying to be a, a, a fellow human being. He was shot by another human being just for being black and he's handcuffed to his bed. Right. And at the same time, and I won't say his name, but the white boy, the 17 year old boy that that is documented to have that was without a doubt guilty of killing two people. And he's not a law enforcement uh, officer in any shape, form or fashion. Right. He was uh, uh, taken into custody no violence. He was offered water by law enforcement. He was treated with respect and the and, and No, no and he with left humanity. the crime scene. He left the
1: crime mm. scene, Jason. He left. He walked down with a weapon and and uh, left the crime scene, drove home, and then they came to his house to pick him up, mm. you know. And people were screaming to the lawyer to the law enforcement. That's the guy who just shot people, mm. and they couldn't fathom that it was a young white kid walking down with an open, uh, uh, big rifle. Still, the police officers like, okay, let him like slide by. And so, I mean, you know, uh, you know. And I think about, I mean, that's just crazy by itself. And then, then you think about mental health. and you think about Daniel Prude, what happened in Rochester, for example,
0: right? Tell me what happened in Rochester. I, I didn't. In Rochester it was a
1: it was a African American family, they've been dealing with mental health. Um, Daniel Prude's brother, so Daniel Prude has mental health issues and he stayed with his brother. And he had, you know, he just in the, this was in March, but it came out now. So he went out, he left uh, the home and, and his brother was very concerned. So he called 911, said, hey, I'm very worried about my brother. He just left. And I need you to go out and look for him, because I'm worried." And as the police officer was talking to him, they heard on the radio, "Hey, we have an African-American man here naked in the middle of the street. This is in March. He's freezing in Rochester upstate. Um, the police officer go over there, they put a spit hood on top of him, and you know, you know then, mm. he dies. Mm. Like they sit on him. They kind of jokingly talk about it. The video is horrible. And you know, the video came out now in August, and it led to the law enforcement had to like they got fired and had to leave. But same thing, you have somebody calling because their brother is out there, they're calling the police out as a concern, right? What happens two hours later? The, the black man is dead, right? And so, when I when you talk about defunding the police, it's 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 there need to be other ways to have, when things are happening, to have mental health workers deal with this, and, and the money just need to be defunded. So you have other ways, other means of dealing with this. This is not a violent crime. This is somebody that dealt with mental health issues and clearly needed help. What happens too late is later, you know, they put a spit hood on top of him and strangle him and he dies. right? So things like that. I go in between rage and crying when I see that. And the thing is, I already know the ending to this now, which makes you almost numb, you know? So, um, yeah, man, it's, um, it's, um, we're making progress, but we're also making requests. Yeah. So anyway, we got to, we got to, we got to round been yeah. It's been great.
0: It's been great to yeah. be back and chat. I needed to talk to you, brother.
1: Yeah, needed to you talk. Know? and. We should check out and we should make sure that Duharette, you had right, can come yep. to America because we need it. And I will also um, I just want to say one more time, I appreciate uh, these talks so much, that means the world to me. So thank you very much, Jason, for
0: likewise, um, my friend.
1: Beyond Yeah right.
0: man. Catch you next week, brother. Peace. For this
1: moment. Peace out.
0: This moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an ACAST recording and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned, more depth coming your way soon.